but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Server. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. It's been three weeks since we've been on air. We've taken an inadvertent hiatus. Mm. It's felt like a few days, to be honest. It's felt much longer to me. I said to you, <laughs> after two weeks, I said, we have to get one out like tomorrow because it's been three weeks. And you're like, uh, no, it's been two weeks. Mm -hmm. But that was last week. Now it's been quite a while. After the whole clay... European swing and then right into Wimbledon, I was just exhausted. Honestly, I have really been tuned out of tennis for the most part over the past three weeks. I mean, that's that, probably not good to say right before we do an episode, right? But that's not true. You're on Twitter every day, which means you're on tennis Twitter every day. So you're still getting the news. You're just not watching matches per se. Mm. You did watch one match or one set of one match. Um, exactly, which accounts for my mood over the past like four or five days. I watched Serena's opener against Joanna Conta in San Jose, and I'm sorry I did, because it was just a horrible experience for everyone, except for Joanna Conta. Before we start, shout out to Steph in the U.S.'s mom. Steph tells us that this will be the first episode that Steph's mom will be listening to. We've met her many times, so oh, welcome. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> Shout out to you, and we'll see you both in about a week or so. Let's start with Andrew Baron Murray, who is back on the ATP Tour. Had three big three-set wins in Washington, which was then marred by some horrific comments to our minds by the Washington, D.C. tournament director. <laughs> horrific? Uh, they were pretty bad. So Murray played a grass tune-up, but ended up not playing Wimbledon, said he wasn't quite ready. We'd always kind of thought that Washington was going to be the spot where he came back. He kind of gave us that impression all along. It was kind of a surprise to see Andy back so soon. Didn't play Wimbledon, now he's back in Washington. We'd heard reports that he, more so than the grass, his body was feeling better on the hard courts. He opens up against Mackie McDonald, wins in three sets, goes on to beat Kyle Edmund in the second round, big win in three sets again, and then, after having suffered through all these rain delays, being the night match in every match he's played, he then has to play Marius Koppel, which goes to 3 a.m. in the morning, three-hour match, and he pulls that out in a third-set mm. tiebreak. It was grinding. He hit far fewer winners than his opponent. It was just a physical test of his surgically repaired hip. And he was totally emotionally overwhelmed by the end of that match. Sat in his chair for, for quite a while, just weeping. And credit to the, uh, the Tennis Channel team, kind of stayed quiet for a little while. And just, I mean, it was probably pretty invasive to just stay on him like that. But <laughs> the fans wanted to see it. It's rare that you see such a naked, open display of emotion. Tennis players, men and women, are emotional all the time. Not necessarily in the ways that Andy Murray was. They're erratic, they're angry, they're aggressive, they shout, they storm around the place, 
there's a lot of histrionics, especially on the men's tour. <laughs> you know, but we don't get this kind of raw, unfiltered emotion when players are just so overcome by an achievement on court, like we saw with Murian. And when we do get them, it's it's something that's really momentous in their career. It's maybe a, a first slam win, uh, winning a slam after thinking you may never win one again. But in this case, it's Andy Murray probably grappling with the demons of wondering if he'd ever play tennis again. Mm -hmm. And so winning three matches in one tournament, just making the quarterfinals, felt like a huge achievement to him in that moment. And that's what we saw. And we have no idea what he was feeling, honestly. Maybe he's feeling discouraged at the state of his body. I have no idea. Yeah. But it's, you know, a not that important match in a not that important tournament in the whole journey of his career. But in another way, it is. So when he expressed, uh, well, he kind of equivocated about whether he would play the following day. The tournament director, Keely O'Brien, who was quoted by Ava Wallace of the Washington Post, really kind of went in on Andy in a just a really unseemly way. Not an entirely surprising way, but as I kind of ruminate on it, it makes me more and more angry. It, it's very surprising. It's one of the most shocking statements I've ever seen from a tournament director. But it, like, if you think about it, this is what tournament directors do. They do not see the player-tournament relationship as emotional or human. Players are there to make them money. And that was what she laid out as clear as day. Well, yes, we know that. But you rarely hear somebody spell it out in such unequivocal terms where there's no trying to decipher what the meaning is. It wasn't a coded message. We're not sitting here thinking, is that what she meant? We're like, no, this is exactly what she meant because she told us. O'Brien says, I think and hope that Andy really takes into consideration his role in this sport and as a global role model to guys and girls on the tour and kids around the world, that when things are difficult and tough and the conditions aren't great, that it's not okay to just give up. I hope we see him on court tonight fighting like he did last night, because that, I believe, is the right message for anyone in this sport. <laughs> so she's lecturing a guy who just came back from nearly a year layoff with a career-threatening injury, who maybe thought he would never play at this level again, who just played at your tournament till 3 in the morning after a three-hour match, and talking about, well, you have to be a good role model, you have to fight like you did last night. We need you. You belong to us. It was so distasteful. Like, it's making me mad again. Andy Murray, who is in his 30s, three-time slam champion, Olympic champion, who's done damn near everything in this sport, given everything in this sport. Has she watched any of those six-hour Australian Open finals? <laughs> <laughs> right? It's like, well, you were a good role model then, but I need you to keep being a good role model because you are putting money in the pocket of this tournament. You're making like, that's me what it sounds good. like. Mm -hmm. If that's not, that may not be what she meant, but that is what it comes off like. And it's just not good. It's bad PR. And to me, it highlights the fact that tournament directors will never have the best interests of players in mind. Well, they often don't. Maybe not will never. Well, structurally, what I mean is that this is why a players union is beneficial because an association that represents tournament directors will never put the players first their health and well-being comes after profit 
that's it. Like it's, and she showed it as clear as day. Because she could easily have said, you know, wow, Andy came in here, you know, with question marks about his fitness, and we're so happy that we were able to give him the platform to work things out and we're happy for his success and we hope his body mends in time to be able to play tomorrow because we're so happy to have him Mm. here which is typically what these statements look and sound like but there were just layers of kind of the gospel of the protestant work ethic um (laughs) there was this emotional manipulation this appeal to kind of doing the right thing and also protecting his reputation it was there was a lot going on there let's show the boys and girls that when things are tough you just don't give up don't give up andy (laughs) (laughs) like to andy murray of all people and because andy murray is a hilarious dude he takes to instagram and he posts a picture of himself screaming presumably after winning a, a point mouth just agape and he says, boring, comma, miserable, comma, no personality, period. Big heart, though. <laughs> <laughs> and he got all this support from all these players because it was just rude AF. Now to Serena Williams. Last we had seen her, she made it all the way to the Wimbledon final, losing to Angelique Kerber. Back in the top 30, was making her return to U.S. hard courts after... The Sunshine Swing, Indian Wells and Miami, which didn't go so well for her. Right. And she had planned to play uh, San Jose, Montreal, and then Cincinnati. I knew that wasn't going to happen. So I assumed that she was going to take one of those off. That's just too many. They're all back-to-back. They're no weeks off in that stretch. Uh, But what happened was not exactly what I planned. (laughs) So Zarina lost her opener to Joanna Conta, 6-1-6-love. It was the worst loss of her career, and it looked every ounce of the worst loss of her career. I don't want to talk too much about it because it's really depressing to me. She didn't play well. Kanta played exceptional tennis. Like This wasn't the Kanta that's dropped in the rankings over the last year. This was the Kanta from 2016, and there was no let-up. There was nowhere for Serena to hide. Her serve wasn't working. She held serve once, I think, the entire match. Every time she got to 30-all or, say, 15-30, you felt like maybe she got her teeth into a game. Kanta was just there to snuff it out, or Serena just sprayed the ball all over the place. And midway through that second set, a look of total despair was on Serena's face, to the point where it seemed that she was on the verge of tears. Mm -hmm. Clearly something was going on. I mean, her game wasn't together, but we can only speculate on what was going on behind the scenes. For some reason, that week, that day, basically, this news came out in several different outlets that the killer of Serena and Venus's eldest sister, Yatundi, had been paroled in March. It's still unclear why this news broke in July when it happened in March. I didn't know about it when it happened. I can't imagine that the family wasn't notified in March, right? Like, I, I can't imagine this was the first that they had heard about it. I'm told that families have the option to sign up for something that notifies them. Okay. So we don't know. We simply do not know. Maybe somebody in the family was notified and Serena wasn't told. Or maybe everybody Mm. knew. But still, with this being brought up in the press again, after maybe forgetting about it for three, four months, 
having to mm-hmm. deal with it again made her even more emotional for whatever reason this is all speculation right. but and it was coincidental that this happened the same day that she had to play in san jose mm-hmm. and it also may have nothing to do with this we really have no idea and then she pulled out of montreal with personal reasons so i don't really know what to expect from serena she is supposed to play in cincinnati so i really really hope to see her there i know that she's in florida at ihop right now with olympia and kwai kwai oh my god <laughs> Quite quite being poor doll. Olympia's new doll. <laughs> Serena's grandbaby, as she says. <laughs> Did you think that after the Wimbledon result that Serena was back? Forget about what we think may have intervened in causing this performance. Mm. Say this is just a bad loss without any added context. Does this surprise you after Wimbledon? Well, I didn't expect a performance like this, but I didn't feel that Serena was back after watching the Wimbledon final. Her performance in the final wasn't that great, and she didn't obviously face the caliber of opponent that she has faced on many of her title runs at Wimbledon. So I was encouraged, but not convinced, let's say. I think it's clear that there's still a lot of work to be done, right? I don't think that's unfair. What is that? What is the work that needs to be done? Well, I don't know. I'm not her coach. I think she probably has a lot more conditioning to do. And that's just a matter of, like, it's going to take a while to get her body back to where it has to be. Like, she was in peak physical condition. No, I mean, I'm talking about what about her game needs improvement from what you've seen. Movement. To me, everything is going to come from that. It's movement. She's not getting to the balls. Her feet are not moving well enough. She's sort of bending over hitting out of position. It's like everything is going to flow from that, I think. Fitness and the serve. And even more so if you're without the fitness and you don't have the serve, it's that's what's going to happen in San right. Jose. What are some of the other results that have happened since Wimbledon? Well, while you were sleeping, Fabio Fognini won two titles. Bastard on clay, and he just won Los Cabos on hard court in Mexico for his third title this year with that insanely dumb hair with the little rubber bands and he looked like pebbles from flintstones he looked like he went to los cabos to have a mini vacation and play a tournament <laughs> and he manages to get the winner's yeah. check and the trophy and gets get a bunch of points so i mean what what a successful week for him right and all of a sudden he's having like one of the best years of his career easily dominic team is steady losing in tournaments he shouldn't even be playing in he lost uh, at Hamburg at the 500 clay tournament there. He lost in Kitzbühel, which I guess uh, he it makes sense that he'll play it because it's in Austria. That's a 250. He lost to the eventual champ in Kitzbühel, Klezan. He's never beaten Klezan, as it turns out. I believe hmm. he's 0-3 now. Really? DC this week had four very young semifinalists, next-gen all. Sasha Zverev happened to be the eldest of the four. The defending champion and eldest of the four. Mm-hmm. He beats Alex Diminar in the final. Diminar having a fantastic breakout year. Super stuff to start the year in Australia. And we often see folks have those big results and then kind of trail off. He's coming right back again. Mm-hmm. Hardcore time and he's back. A similar story with Tsitsipas is having a breakout year He's won 22 matches so far this year, and he's only won 26 his entire career on the ATP main tour. 
He was ranked 91 at the beginning of the year. Now he's up to 90 or 27, most likely. An interesting little battle for world number three was an offer this week with Juan Martin Del Potro in Los Cabos. He needed to, in effect, outlast Zverev in DC to become world number three for the first time in his career. His career high has been number four, which is kind of surprising that he's never in his career mm-hmm. been higher than number four. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, obviously, <laughs> Fonini takes out Del Potro in the final in Los Cabos and then Zverev defense. So he remains, the German remains number three. And uh, Juan Martin will have to try again. Zverev does have Rogers Cup to defend. That's a thousand points. The tour never stops. He's got to get to Toronto right away and work on defending that title. If you recall, last year he won DC, he won Montreal, beating Federer in that final. Mm-hmm. And then he gets to Cincinnati, and we watched that match play out with Francis Tiafo yes. on center court. He had nothing left. Yeah. And then it was downhill from there because he lost in the US Open to Borna Chorich. Happy news. Svetlana Kuznetsova is back in the winner's circle. 33 years old, having had surgery at the end of last year, the start of this year. Poor results, really, on her way back. Mm. Barely winning matches. Manages to string together this championship run in D.C. She's played the event twice. She told us this in her victory speech. Twice she's played in D.C. and twice now she's won. <laughs> she won in 2014. Uh, today, she saved match points against Donna Vekic, who herself is a comeback story, who suffered, you know, was wandering through the desert for those probably two or three years after being such a, a dynamic young player. She's still only, what, 21? Yeah, I think she's she still turned 21. quite young. This title obviously meant a lot to both women. The trophy presentation was so moving. Donna Vekic was very emotional. Clearly, she wanted this title badly. She said thanks to her coach and sorry I couldn't win and then kind of broke down. And Kuznetsova, who is charismatic but doesn't always show emotion that freely, seemed uh, really moved to be part of this occasion. Both players said tennis is hard. You know, this life that we've chosen is difficult. You lose nearly every week unless you're one of the top, top players. You lose constantly. Svetlana is a very pragmatic person, and I think that's what shone through in this ceremony. She said... Not only that tennis is tough, you you lose often and whatever. She said you have to make peace with losing and winning. Mm. That you learn from both. And something that's helped her is to keep kind of an even keel. Which echoes (laughs) Nadal. Can you tell me how many WTA finals Svetlana Kuznetsova has made in her career? No. Um, I think she has 18 titles though, right? That's correct. Uh, Maybe like 26? She's made 41 finals. Wow. Svetlana is 18 and 23. Only 10 of those finals have come in the last eight years. Mm. Seven to eight years. So she did most of her winning and finals appearances between 2002 and 2009. And that's where her four slam finals came, between 2004 and 2009. It's been a tough road in the 2010s for her. She's still been an accomplished player, but she hasn't had the success at the same rate that she did in her early 20s. Mm-hmm. To me, both both women's speeches reminded me that, yes, the sport is hard, it is unforgiving, 
it, it amazes me that so many players manage to find the motivation to keep going after being knocked down so many times. Life is hard, and those amazing euphoric moments come few and far between. And so when people say, well, oh, their life is not that hard, you know, they make a lot of money, they get to do what they love. Yes, that's true, but it's also not a very interesting way to talk about sports for me, because when you're that invested in what you do, it is very painful. And for some of these players, and I believe Svetlana is one of them, the tour and the relationships and the friendships that you make on tour is a huge part of why they remain on tour. For a lot of them, it's a family dynamic. And Svetlana is one of the most beloved, universally beloved players on Mm -hmm. the WTA tour. By her peers and by fans. She's somebody who still plays the circuit, even though she could be at home with her dog Dolce. (laughs) (laughs) Right. She said she ordered Uber Eats every day this week, but she decided her team deserved to go out to dinner tonight. Oh my God. (laughs) She felt that they had earned it. (laughs) Privately, over the last few weeks, maybe even months, this is a topic that you've been chatting my ear off. What? Repeatedly. And now you finally get to talk about it on the show because it's become even more timely. Well, I guess it would have been more timely two or three weeks ago, but we were on vacation. (laughs) From Not vacation, we were on hiatus. You've said to me multiple times that you just wish Serena would stop talking about getting tested. (laughs) Okay. Now let's, let's rewind and add some color to that. Because yes, I have said I wish Serena would stop tweeting about being singled out about drug testing. I think a lot of this started from the Deadspin piece that I think was released during Roland Garros, in which the reporter presented her with this information about how many times players have been tested by the US ADA. And Serena had been tested five times from January to June, and several of her American peers had been tested once, you know, once or twice or zero times. So Serena already feeling that she was targeted because her ranking was so low, this gave her more evidence that there was possibly some discrimination that she was being targeted because of who she is because of the therapeutic use exemption leak a few years ago for whatever reason however the deadspin story did such a disservice because it turns out it presented really less than half the story the fact is that the itf and wada also tests and the itf actually tests quite a bit more than the national doping agencies they print their results at the end of each year. So the res- you know the number of tests they've administered in 2018 are not available yet. We have no idea what they've done so far. That'll come out at the end of the year. But when we look at the evidence from 2016 and 2017, it's clear that Serena, Venus, Roger, and several other American tennis players are tested at pretty much the same frequency. Madison Keys, Sloane Stevens, So much about this makes me question how much Serena is aware of the totality of the drug testing program, right? The many different branches, Mm -hmm. facets, what it all means. Because for a lot of people, they don't know that there's the USADA, the WADA testing, there's ITF testing. That's three separate ones, right? Mm. So if Serena is reading this story and she's presented with USADA testing and it's five to one, and she's thinking, well... I'm not even in the testing pool right now. My ranking is 800 and something. The testing pool is once you've made it into the top 50, then you're 
required to give your whereabouts. Right. Right? And it's, it's a bit more stringent. The demands on you for being tested are more. I've since read that it's not a hard and fast rule and that something else that's taken into consideration with being a part of the testing pool is your likelihood of winning events, which seems a little bit kind <laughs> of... Arb- oh, yeah. No, there's a lot of uh, like caveats. Yeah. There's also if the anti-doping agency has a reason to believe. Basically, if they have... If they feel there's probable cause, I mean, it's not a criminal thing here, but if they feel that uh, we want to get more information about this player because, uh, like, something's not quite right, they can test more if they feel like it. Like, that is their right. So I think Serena said or hinted that, oh, no, I'm being tested a lot for somebody who's ranked so low, but not really framed within the specific parameters of, well, I'm not in the testing pool, why am I being tested? Right. You know, there's a lot of imprecise language that's being used by everybody involved, by the person who wrote the Deadspin article, by Serena in talking about this and tweeting about this. She's using language that will incite a certain response mm-hmm. from her fan base mostly. And we've yet to get a full picture discussion of this whole situation. Right. And part of that is due to the vagueness in many respects of the doping protocols and the whole doping system in general. It's a lot. Oh, you know, you and I have tried to tackle this on several episodes when something comes up, when the Cornet thing comes up, when Tomas Bellucci's bespoke vitamins came up. Pastagate. We try to take these things seriously and actually do some research because it's it's hard to understand i think for just a casual fan it's not that interesting to read these reports so here's what we know we know that the itf accounts for almost 75 percent of an athlete's testing of elite tennis players wada as we mentioned can also test it reserves the right to test but apparently it rarely actually does national testing so like the usada whatever they have in the UK, France, etc. Those national agencies have jurisdiction while the athlete is in their home country. And while the athlete is out of their home country, the ITF has jurisdiction. So if most of the tournaments or you spend most of your time in another country, the ITF is going to test you maybe quite a bit. We've heard from Roger Federer that he says he's probably been tested like once in Dubai, which is alarming. He knows the tester in Switzerland. Like, he just comes around to the house whenever. <laughs> but the testers aren't in Dubai. Right. Right? And but if to Roger get to Dubai, is in Dubai, they should go to preserve the integrity of the system, right? Because it's not just Roger. So many players train in Dubai now. Yes. And your point in saying that is, it seems that there are more testers available in southern Florida than there is in somewhere like Dubai. Right? Well, where course. the Bryans Which train, where the Williams train in Florida... It makes sense that they might get tested more because they don't have to fly across the ocean to a totally different continent to go right. test somebody. I think I hesitate to say that Serena is right or wrong in, in feeling hard done by. We don't know her situation. It's hard for me to... I mean, it's hard for anyone to sit on the sidelines and say, oh, she just needs to shut up and play tennis. Or on the other hand oh, yeah, she's totally right. She's being discriminated against because of who she is. I can't say that either. But your point in bringing up this whole topic and to say that you wish you would stop talking about it 
is because you feel that she's bringing this attention to her from the folks who have always held that she's a doper. I I feel that she's bringing attention to it, that she's giving people ammunition to call her a cheater or somebody who skirts the rules. And maybe I'm wrong. And you can tell me I'm wrong. Because there will always be those people, regardless of how she decides to approach it. Like, when she beats these records, if she beats all the records there are, there's going to be another way to discount her achievements. And it's going to be she cheated. She was on drugs. There's going to be a way to knock her down a peg. Always. For the rest of time. But why, like, why get on Twitter and give people a reason? We had a very helpful kind of explainer stories from the New York Times and from ESPN that painted a fuller picture of the doping system and gave some context to Serena's complaints. Now, Kamakshi Tandon has been roundly criticized <laughs> by the army, but Tennis Twitter just went off on this story. I read it again today, and I'm not trying to beat up on her, but man, we are using stolen, leaked, private medical data to make arguments here, and it just makes me uncomfortable. And I have to wonder, like, what are the ethical guidelines when you're using data that was illegally gotten? Is it now part of the public sphere and fair game because it's now out there? So apparently it is. So Tandon's story was about Serena's therapeutic use exemptions. It explained, I mean, there was a lot of helpful information about that. It was a well-researched story, but the part that made me very uncomfortable from a journalistic point of view was when the writer started talking about Serena's symptoms at the 2015 French Open, where she took corticosteroids and said, sort of tried to diagnose her and then speculate whether the drug she was taking would have a positive effect on her sickness. It was bizarre. And in my opinion, not the role of a journalist. It was very strange to me and really inappropriate. I think there's scope to flesh out TUEs. That's something that folks don't have a good grasp on for mm-hmm. the most part. And this this uh, practice whereby players are given TUEs retroactively doesn't do players any favors in the court of public opinion as far as are they doping or not. So can you explain what that means, retroactive TUEs? So a therapeutic use exemption is, is the official term when a player is granted use of a drug or a treatment that would normally be banned but because a doctor has said that they absolutely need it for the preservation of their health and for their well-being, they're allowed this one-time usage. Now, the retroactive part, though. The retroactive part, in the case of Serena, for example, she's sick at the 2015 French Open. She doesn't have the benefit of waiting a week to get official clearance to take this corticosteroid, right? She needs to take it right then, be able to continue to play and so she has i guess like a verbal prescription from a doctor the doctor you know the doctor is gonna be the doctor has to file this report serena can't just say well i'm gonna go on my computer and go to tue.com and file a (laughs) file a request right right? like a a committee needs to be convened by the itf 
and they decide whether or not they approve it. Yeah, but at the behest of the doctor. Right. right? There's a doctor, an actual doctor involved. Mind you, not the doctor that was wrapped up in the Balco stuff like Bethanymatic Sands. Not that kind of doctor. What? Like a regular doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so the athlete takes the drug and then applies for the TUE and it's granted after the fact. Mm-hmm. But what I want to know is what happens if you do that, you apply for the TUE, you're denied, and then you have this drug in your system, you get tested two days later, and then what? Right. Because we've yet to see a case like that play out in public. Uh-huh. And she won the French Open. Yeah. So had they denied the TUE, would they take away the title? I mean, would there be a ban in place? I mean, these these are like the touchy questions involved in retroactive TUEs. Clearly, like a therapeutic use exemption is an important thing to have because there are so many basic drugs that are banned that people often need to survive in mm-hmm. their daily life. The Tendon's article actually quoted an expert in this field of study from our university, University of Western Ontario, who said that retroactive TUEs are very problematic and tennis really needs to look at the way that they grant therapeutic use exemptions. So we can I mean, we can debate that. He's the expert. However, there was a counter-argument saying that it's robust. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this is your CNN talking head in print here. Right. And that the TUE is submitted to the board anonymously. So the panel that's convened doesn't know that they're ruling on a Serena Williams TUE. It's based on the evidence put forth by the doctor, the case, and then they do what's... Mm -hmm. They make their decision. Because the way that this was presented when it was leaked is that, oh, Serena calls up the president of the ITF and says, hey, I need a TUE. Hey, I just took this drug. I I can take anything I want because I'm Serena Williams. That's not how it works. Like, the application is presented, as you said, anonymously, and then a committee rules on it. What I do not like about this article is that it it gives license to these armchair scientists at home to then say, well, that person is a drug user, that person is not. That is absolutely not what that should be used for. That's ridiculous. That's gaming the system. Maybe this is naive of me, but... There's a difference between between exercising critical thinking and well, and questioning knowing, somebody in their field of expertise when and, you when you right. do not have that expertise and knowing when you're out of your depth exactly right. So that was the issue that I took with the writer of this article. With all due respect, I don't mean to insult her, but to, I don't mean to call her no disrespect on your name, <laughs> as Fantasia Barina would say. <laughs> But to speculate on, first of all, Serena's illness based on kind of visuals alone, and then wonder whether the drug she was taking would have a beneficial effect on said illness is totally just out of line with your role as a reporter. It's just, it's not, like, it's not your field of expertise. Why are you doing this? Because she even went on to say, well, I'm making that potential cause and effect here right. but they might also be something totally different but it might be wrong it so might be wrong and why? it might be something totally different that was at play that was <laughs> so why the would, cause for the tue like why would you put that in print if it's pure speculation i am just shocked that that would make it through an editor well it is tennis.com this is not let's be real here well it's owned by sinclair yeah we know that newspapers and magazines around the world have lost copy editors for as much as we decry the decline of 
traditional print journalism and even the the big house papers you know we've been critical of stuff written in the new york times Mm -hmm. and all these big papers tennis.com is not that and so to expect that they would have the same standards as the new york times which is lacking at this point (laughs) is is a bit of a stretch okay I don't think we mentioned at the beginning of the episode that part of this is a listener mailback. We solicited questions and we got tons of very interesting questions. And so we're going to kind of take them piecemeal because we can't answer them all in one. Well, the idea was to have a bank of questions that we can then draw on to answer in future Mm. episodes. We'll keep soliciting them and adding them to our database. We have a file now and then we'll just pull from that database when it becomes timely or if we need to fill a segment. This anti-doping discussion brought up a question from Sam, who is at top underscore tennis. She asked, what is our ideal kind of anti-doping testing infrastructure? How How would we actually structure the system if we were the ones in charge? That is a very big question, but it's it's interesting to me. It we obviously don't have the expertise to like build one from the ground up. No. But there are there are kind of points that you want it to hit. The first off, we need more transparency. In whatever way that testing takes place in tennis, there needs to be transparency around it. Mm-hmm. One of the big things that I would push for is a unified front when it comes to the reporting of the testing results because we've seen now like all these reports in the last few months have shown that having your country testing, the ITF testing, WADA testing, having three different branches of testing, and then using selective stats from one and not the totality of all three is problematic. (laughs) Because it just muddies the waters even more. It causes Mm. all this confusion. So what I'd like to see is more cooperation between the International Tennis Federation and the national agencies, at least in reporting. It, uh, it confuses me that there are national anti-doping authorities and the ITF. I don't know why those things can't be consolidated. Is it just like a workload and budget issue? They're, they're subsets. Mm. They're subsidiaries of the international testing. It's in track, mm. there's the Jamaican local testing, and then there's the international, t- the IWAF testing, right. and then there's the J3A testing. And there have been instances in the past where somebody's tested positive with the IWAF and then the J3A has then said, well, we've done our own investigation and we we actually don't think that that's the case. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, it's a different relationship in track, but it's not uncommon across different sports okay. to have multiple branches, international and local, mm-hmm. to answer your question. Another thing is we've been told that silent bans are a thing of the past. I'm not entirely sure that's true. So one stipulation is that silent bans will never happen again. That's the ideal for me. When decisions are made, they need to be publicized immediately unless there's some uh, privacy concern. And when a player has broken an anti-doping rule or tested positive, they cannot wait six to nine months for a hearing. It's not fair. It's cruel. It is. Even if the player is guilty of the violation, it is cruel. Alize Cornet said she waited something like nine months to hear about her case. That needs to be 
I don't know how you fix that, but that makes the whole system suspect. I think in general, I would just want an anti-doping system that is transparent and easier to understand for fans. Tennis already is such a confusing sport for a lot of people. It's hard to track down. It's hard to find it on TV. They're all over the world. Like <laughs> the anti-doping system is just one more thing that makes tennis complicated. And it's too complicated to boil it down to that person's a cheater and that person's clean. Right. Like if that's your view of sport and doping, then boy, that is a good place to be in. If that's the way you can look at the world. <laughs> if life can be that black and white for you. It's funny because the people on, say, tennis Twitter who are very knowledgeable about this stuff become kind of famous when a when a doping issue comes around, right? They become the subject matter expert for that week or that news cycle. And it shouldn't it shouldn't have to be that way. Like you shouldn't have to be a scientist to understand how the anti-doping system works in tennis. Shout out to NMRC. Who right. Who is so knowledgeable, so much though so that I asked her like, how do you know all this stuff? And it it's really just a hobby for her. But you really have to do your research to be able to talk about this stuff confidently. A question from Aaron at AR Knight 12. Who will complete the career slam first? Kerber, Muguruza, Kvitova, or Azarenka? Serena fans will not like my answer for this one. Well, we're talking about who's won all four slams. Oh. And right now, Kerber is the closest, having won three. Yes. I, well, my vote is actually Muguruza. You know, she's only one on clay and grass. I think that she has the most potential to win on all surfaces. I think that Kerber winning the French Open is very far away. Like, it, she has not even come close. But Muguruza has shown so much aptitude on hard courts. She won Cincinnati. I mean, her performances in the U.S. and Australia haven't been, like, amazing. But she's young, and she's tough, and she's a really good competitor. So I, I would put my money on her. Petra has won only at Wimbledon. Right. Azarenka has won only in Australia. It's a bit of a tough ask for both those women at this stage of their careers, I think. And so it does boil down to a battle between... A battle. <laughs> a quote-unquote battle between <laughs> Angelique Kerber and Muguruza. And I do agree with you. Not necessarily how you got there, but I do think Muguruza <laughs> is the one to do it. I think that winning the French and Wimbledon is the toughest ask to getting the four. You know, because now mm -hmm. you just need two hardcourt slams. Right. And those you can target and gear toward more, more readily than especially Wimbledon, where you only have one or two weeks mm -hmm. to prepare. You have the big clay court swing. If you have the aptitude on clay, you can, you can go get that. But now that she's gotten those two out of the way... And especially because she's she's shown clear aptitude on hard, hard courts, winning Cincinnati last year in exceptional fashion. She is the one. We've always said that Muguruza is the one with all the tools, right? Mm -hmm. And she's really the one who can go on a tear. Like, she she's the one out of the four of them. Her and Kvitova are the ones who can play lights out as if, as if they're not even thinking about it, that they can dominate so easily. With Kerber and Azarenka, I feel like it's uh, it's more uphill. Spare a thought for Azarenka, who had to retire against Danielle Collins the other night. I think that women's tennis 
really, really benefits from having Azarenka near the top of the game. I think her competitive spirit is is not to be matched. And uh, I really hope that she can get her career back on track. Angie at Angs2014 asks us, what are the top five places you'd recommend around the venue or around Toronto in general, referencing the mm-hmm. Rogers Cup? The first part of that question, around the venue, nowhere. <laughs> the event is held at York University at the Aviva Center, and it's on campus. You have to walk through campus to get there. Only just this year did they complete a new subway stop that lands on campus to be able mm-hmm. to make the tournament more accessible. Previously, it was a hell of a trek to get to the yes. site. If you were taking public transit, it was a long subway ride to the terminus. Then you had to take a bus to the university. And then it's a hell of a walk to the to the actual venue mm-hmm. on the campus. And campus I'm- is very spread out. It's very unlike downtown Toronto. Um, but the subway station there changes everything. York University is in kind of the northwest part of the city. It is near... Uh, Jane and Finch, which is kind of a, a largely West Indian neighborhood. You can get amazing Jamaican food in that neighborhood. No place that you can really walk to. You probably have to take a bus. But the subway station makes things totally different. Um, if you want to like go down the stops, if you get off at Wilson, you can have Filipino food and bagels. It's a Filipino and Jewish neighborhood. So the bagels are not going to be like Montreal and New York, but they're not bad. If you get off at Eglinton West, that's basically Little Jamaica. St. Clair West is now it's kind of like hipster bougie strollers, but it's close to Toronto's second Little Italy, which in my opinion is better because Italians actually still live there. I don't think you're answering the question at all. I'm I'm telling them take a trip down the Young University subway. Okay. <laughs> Angie wants to know what are the top five places in Toronto you'd recommend. Oh, I'd recommend the Toronto Islands. Yes. Pick whichever one you want. Go three t- separate days if you want. You can take a ferry or a water taxi to the islands. It's uh, it's part of the city of Toronto. It's within the city limits, but it's very... Uh, it's isolated. It feels kind of untouched, idyllic. It's beautiful out there. It's really nice. Angie asked me about Rec Room which is, uh, they just built it across from the Sky Dome and the CN Tower, like, last year. She's upset with me that we have not been there yet, so we'll we'll have to get there this year. It was explained to me by somebody who was like, <laughs> oh, I think I'm going to go. I'm like, what is that? And I was like, uh, no, I don't think I'll be going. <laughs> it's like a, like an adult arcade thing yeah. with drinks and food. So we enjoy going to the islands. I would also recommend going to St. Lawrence Market area. Then you can walk down to the lakeshore, take a walk along the lakeshore. That all can be done in one day, really. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> you can, that's right by where the ferry terminal is to go to the islands. And there are any number of places you can go eat on the waterfront mm-hmm. down that side. I always recommend people visiting Toronto stay away from kind of the Young Street, CN Tower, downtown tourist areas. The Young Dundas Square? No. Definitely no. a hard pass. No. So visit the Gay Village on Church and Wellesley. Um, visit College Street, Queen West, obviously, but Bloordale, St. Clair West. Like there are so many great neighborhoods in Toronto that gives you kind of a, a different feel. And look at areas based on the food as well. 
Mm-hmm. If you want, if you want really great Vietnamese, it's all over the West End. There's the Lakeview Diner, which is a historic location. At this point, many films have been shot there. Hairspray was shot there. There's a wall with all the the famous actors who've been in mm. the place. The best advice is to to stay off the beaten path. I love this question from Peter Tiger84. If y'all were single, would you go on Love Island? Which tennis players would you bring? <laughs> Hat tip to Courtney Mania for the inspiration. This Peter, question is topical Peter. because we've been we've been tweeting about Love Island a lot. There weren't many tennis Twitter mutuals who were tweeting about right. Love Island, but we were on board for the first time this season. In short, to answer your question, no, I would not go on Love Island. No, no. It it takes us specific personality type i think to go on love island you have to be willing to walk around in your bathing suit for about 40 days straight and you have to be comfortable on camera and you have to be straight that's a really important one (laughs) however if we did which tennis players would you bring that is such a slutty question I mean, I think that's clear, right? We've done a thirst trap episode. No, listen, let's do Are it we differently. Are updating it? No, let's do it differently. Let's bring six women, six men, mm-hmm. and put them on the Love Island. Oh, okay. And see what happens. I'd put Stan and Donna, see if they survive. Oh, my God. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? That's the first one I thought. <laughs> see if Stan is coming back with somebody else after his first trip to Casa de Amor. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously... Fernando. Is it obvious? For me, it is. <laughs> but so many of these guys are happily married now. That's, that's besides the point. Mm. This is fictional. I'd put Pierre Hugues on. You need that nice guy kind of thing to see <laughs> right. how he Oh, then in navigates. that case, I would put in Luca Puy as well. As what? The nice guy? No, just another French guy. Another hot French guy. <laughs> you said in that case. Oh, what well. is that? appropriate? <laughs> We've got Stan, we've got Pui, we've got Fernando, we've got Ugeber. That's four. Put in Curios. Why not? Oh, definitely. That's five. For personality. And I think I would put in Tsitsipas, because he would be kind of like the philosophical role that Al played on Love Island. So they're the guys. So then on the girls, we have Donna. Mogrutha. Definitely Jeannie Bouchard for the literal mess. <laughs> you need somebody older and wiser. Venus. <laughs> well, they they kind of they don't really have thirty something though. Thirty something. No. Well, well, we make our own rules because Stan mm-hmm. is there. We'll put Venus on there. Would you really subject her to that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we got Donna. We got Muguruza. We got Venus. Jeannie. Jeannie. Oh, I would. Definitely Sloan. Def. Oh, Sloan that's a good one. five, and Ostapenko. Yes, because she would cut a bitch. <laughs> but I'm saying like she would punch every boy in the house, <laughs> right? And they would probably deserve it. And who would be the two surprise entrants? Let's pick one surprise entrant and then man and woman. Mm-hmm. So you know how when you have the original castmates and then they bring in like, oh my god. Two more people are joining the island, right? Mm. So we've got our original cast of 12. Let's each proffer two men and two women to join the island afterward to stir some mm-hmm. shit up. I'm going to name the two men. 
Okay. I'll let you do the woman first. Kiki Mladenovic and Dominika Sibokova. Okay. <laughs> On the men's side, I'm going to go with Dimitrov to bring into the island mm. because he'll have the woman swooning, having them turning their heads <laughs> to see if they're ready to crack on with somebody else. And then you got to bring in a total sex pot to turn everybody's head. Who? Borna Church. Oh, that's true. Like, mm-hmm. if you are happily coupled at that point, you will be questioning things. Mm-hmm. Are you really loyal? <laughs> if it's one thing, I'm loyal. I'm loyal, babes. And the final question in this mailbag segment, I don't know if I want to participate in this. So our friend Dr. Scholes is the most reliable participant in all of our mailbags, comes up with an FMK, an F. Mary Kill for tennis. This This one one is is a barely legal edition. Yeah. So he's clearly trying to get us arrested, get us in trouble, (laughs) banned from tennis forever. So I think we're going to speed through this one really fast. They're all 19. And not add any color. No, they're all 19. They are Demonauer, Tsitsipas, and Shapovalov. Okay, so I know mine. Well, let me think about mine for a second Mm. first. I really was trying to avoid this this entire time. Right. I can assure you that this is not something that we think about in our normal lives. We don't think about these young men. No. Okay, so I would go F. Shapovalov. Marry Tsitsipas, because he could take me around all over Europe. You know, he'd be familiar with yeah. places. I feel like he'd have a little bit more culture than the other two. And I would have to kill Diminar, just because he just reminds me the most of being illegal. Wait, you would F Shapovalov? He's like literally the least attractive of the three. If you have to F one of them, oh, I mean, okay. you're going to be Fing somebody you marry, presumably. <laughs> so F Stefanos. Mary Demonauer, kill Shapovalov. Bye, girl. <laughs> yeah, I'm not invested in that at all. If that's your bag, go for it. Go <laughs> ham in our mentions. Yeah, if you're like 13 years old, go for it. No, but you know what? This is... I uh, had a discussion with somebody earlier this week because they had frequented the gay beach mm-hmm. in Toronto. And the story was relayed to me that one very opinionated straight woman was chastising a 38, 39-year-old gay man for being, like, interested in a younger lad what? on the beach. On the beach? Yeah, the, the kid was, like, 20, 21, and she was like, that's, that's like, pedophilic. And I was like, bitch. Mm. Like, A. <laughs> a. A. Mind your business. Right. B. This is... A historically gay space. Mm-hmm. And three. And three. <laughs> May-December romances have been the foundation of gay life. Right. And this one in particular was legal. Exactly. <laughs> like, take your judgment elsewhere. How dare you bring your judgment yeah, and your heteronormativity. Take, take your judgment to fucking Creighton Barrel or wherever you people hang out. Lord. <laughs> I, I was so repulsed at work when I heard the story. And this was me defending somebody I don't even like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, on that note, <laughs> that brings us to the end of episode 131. We will be coming back to you very soon because we're heading to Cincinnati in five days. We head down Saturday. Mm-hmm. We drive all day to get there and we'll be on site 
ready to work on Sunday. Through the end of the tournament, we'll both be impressed right through the end of the tournament. We'll celebrate my birthday in Cincinnati, which has become tradition. So look out for all our Cincinnati goodies in the coming week and a half. Thanks for your questions, and thanks for listening to us answer them. I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR on Twitter. I'm Jonathan. I'm at tennis underscore John. We are at the Body Serve on Instagram and Twitter. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.